And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why Capitol Police reform is taking so long. Plus, Customs and Border Protection aims to improve training for brokers. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the federal acquisition workforce has recovered from the so-called peace dividend of the 1990s. The number of 1102s, that is, contracting officers, is at its highest point in the last 10 years and possibly since before those cuts in the late 1980s and early 1990s. In his weekly Federal Report, executive editor Jason Miller writes about how despite the fact that there are more contracting officers than maybe ever, the acquisition workforce remains a huge area of concern, especially as the federal procurement budget is expected to top $650 billion in 2023. Jason joins me now with more. What is the raw numbers looking like? How many contracting officers are there and are they all up to snuff? Tom, we look back over the last 10 years at the number of contracting officers government-wide, and what we saw is there's about 41,374 total contracting officers, and that's up from about 37,000 in 2013. So roughly uh, through September of 2022, which is the latest numbers from OPM, roughly a 4,000 or so increase. And if you look at just the numbers in DOD alone or, or non-DOD agencies alone, you're also seeing increases. DOD has almost 3,000 more contracting officers today than they did in 2013. And the civilian agencies have more than 2,500 more contracting officers today than they did in 2013. Now, Tom, the, the issue here, of course, is, okay, that's great, but the number of amount of money being spent on federal procurement is also in, in a, a huge increase. Since 2017 alone, so we're only talking about six years ago now, the amount of money being spent on federal procurement is up by $137 billion. So while there are more people, there's also a lot more money being spent. And I think that's what the problem here is, as is the age of the people who are doing this work. Now, with the dollars up, is the number of contracting actions also up? That would say that the workload is rising. The number of actions are absolutely higher. One of the things you can look at is the use of the task orders, the GSA schedules, the government-wide acquisition contracts. There are more of them. There are more folks using them. If you look under some of the data from OFPP and GSA over the last few years, the, the movement toward multiple award, the blanket purchase agreement type contracts are higher. And yes, that's supposed to be easier for contracting officers, but it's not always you know a one-for-one one trade. Well, because I'm using the schedules, now my job is easier. You still have to do all the processes and all the compliance requirements. So uh, I think yes to that too. Number of actions, transactions are much higher. And how do we know the workforce is struggling so much? Is it because of people leaving quickly or mistakes being made in contracts? I mean, protests aren't up all that much. Correct. And protests are never a good measure of whether or not somebody is good or bad. I think really what we can look at is just the number of people doing the work and then the age of the people doing the work. So for instance, uh, let me give you an example. I recently heard from Jeff Kosis, GSA's senior procurement executive. He spoke at the recent IT vendor management office summit and he goes, 7% of the workforce are under 30 years old across the civilian agency contracting community. 
Now, you, if you look at those above 60, there are four times more people over 60 than under 30. And if you even break it down further, and if you look at just the Federal Acquisition Service, so just GSA's own Federal Acquisition Service, there are more people over the age of 70 than under 25 years old. Now, that's not a bad thing always, right? More people with more experience can do bigger actions, more complicated actions. But those people, Tom, as you know, are going to retire, whether it's in five years or 10 years or 20 years, they will no longer be there. And you have to have that pipeline of people coming in. And I think that's where the challenge has been, is keeping a, a good enough pipeline of people in the attrition rate versus the, and the retirement rate versus is the numbers are hiring. Sure. And unfortunately, as you've seen by raw numbers, the Delta is not great enough. It's definitely a big loss when us geezers way over 60 do leave and all our experience goes with us. I have to agree with you on that one. But in the meantime, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy has some new training approaches. How's that been going so far? Tom, back in January, they rolled out something called the Federal Acquisition Certification and Contracting, the FACC update. Something they've been talking about is trying to make it easier for several reasons. And folks can read about the FACC update. We've written about it over the last nine months or so. But what I've been told, and this is something, again, going back to what Jeff Kosas said, and then I've also talked to some of the, uh, the folks in industry, such as uh, Craig Conrad from the National Contract Management Association and and Tim Cook from ASI Government. And everyone really lauds this change that OFPP made because it brings the civilian side closer to the DOD side. And it also takes away some of the, if you will, challenges of training contracting officers. What Jeff Kosas told me at, at the recent event that he spoke at is under the old program, you know, there was a lot of really intention, well-intentioned things that just weren't working well. You had a government unique curriculum. You had to take these dozens of classes. And if you were someone in IT, you had to take real estate and you had to take all the above classes. Now what they're moving toward is really this idea of just in time. Okay, I'm going to buy cybersecurity. Let me take a class around buying cybersecurity products. I'm going to buy pens and pencils. Let me take a class on buying pens and pencils. And I think that they created because of the old way, this artificial shortage of people who are qualified. And I think that's one of the reasons they're doing this change is really trying to increase the number of people who are qualified. One big change, Tom, as an example, is the need for a four-year degree. And what GSA and others are saying is, no, you don't need that anymore. You just need to be qualified in, in, in other ways. And I think this is really making some changes in a positive way. There are still some concerns. Obviously, I mentioned Craig Conrad, the CEO of the National Contract Management Association. He goes, because the burden now is on the supervisors to make sure their contracting officers are taking the right courses, there needs to be some help for supervisors as well. But again, that's uh, another step in this process. You at least had to change the process before you can then worry about further down the road. And, and over the last nine months, I think that this fact C change has gotten a lot of positive feedback. Now, the fact C change, of course, is specific to contracting officers and the contracting function. Can managers of other functions in the government learn some lessons here for whatever workforce challenges they're facing? I think there is a lot of lessons that can be pulled from this, right? Just because you're not, I don't manage 1102s, I manage IT or program managers, or I manage finance and budget. I think this idea of what a qualified person is, make them good enough to rise to the top to be hired. I think that's a big lesson, right? Yes, you want somebody with a cybersecurity skill set, but do they have to have a government specific one or would a commercial one be good enough? I think that's an easy one. I think a lot of the, the, the IT and cyber folks have accepted the commercial. But what about, for instance, in, in finance and budget? What about in HR? Could you get other certifications and other training that you can then apply to government? Maybe it's an 80%, but the last 20% is the government-specific stuff. So I think that's one big lesson. I think the other big lesson that you have to look at is think about the just-in-time training approach. Certain things like cybersecurity, can maybe you never know what you'll need, when you'll need it, because cyber changes so often. But with budget and with HR, there are certain 
momentum that happens during the year that you, okay, now we're writing the budget. Maybe we'll give them some training before agencies have to get into deep into the budget writing. Okay, now is when we look at the general ledger stuff kind of toward the end of the year, right? Make sure dollars in, dollars out match up. Maybe that training can happen in the fall, right? There's things you can think about to ensure that folks are trained, but also are prepared and not learning a whole bunch of things and then forgetting it and then having to either A, take the training again, or B, not doing it right. I can see the name for the IDIQ for just-in-time training. They'll call it jitters. That's taken already. Uh, Larry Allen would probably borrow that for his uh, newsletter that he writes. All right. Well, free of charge. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to read his federal report. It's now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Customs and Border Protection aims to improve training for brokers. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. As long as the United States has traded with other nations, customs brokers have been at the center of it. Now Customs and Border Protection inaugurates new continuing education for its brokers as trade volumes and complexity grow. Details now from the Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for CBP's Office of Trade, John Leonard. Mr. Leonard, good to have you with us. Great, Tom. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with kind of something basic. Everyone knows the term custom broker. What do custom brokers actually do? Customs brokers are folks that have been around really for almost centuries. Uh, Since the beginning of our republic in 1789, the Customs Service was really one of the first agencies ever set up to help fund our young nation, kind of take down the Revolutionary War debt by collecting duties, et cetera, and promoting international trade. And customs brokers, basically folks that act on behalf of importers and help importers clear goods through customs is their function. I almost uh, make it akin to almost like a tax preparer, if you will. But again, the work they do is of a different nature and, and a little bit more complex in certain respects. But they're in business essentially to expedite freight into the United States on behalf of importers. And how many brokers does CBP actually have? That's an interesting point. We don't employ them. They are private sector individuals. We license them and we regulate them and we actually create the exam that they have to take to become a broker, but we don't employ them. They're in the private sector and it's just shy of 15,000 licensed brokers in the country, many of them working for very recognizable names such as FedEx, UPS, DHL, uh, and larger freight forwarders and, and other brokers. Interesting. Okay. Well, I've learned something new here today myself, so good to have you on. And what types of people? I mean, what is the educational background? Are they accountants in general, or are they lawyers, or what are they? Or just people that really like this stuff? Really all of the above. There are some baseline requirements in the law, and one of them is to be a citizen, 21 years or older. They have to pass the customs broker license exam, which actually is one of the most challenging license exams in the professional space. We have a pass rate that generally is well below 50 percent, and that's on purpose. We want it to be a very challenging exam that only people that are serious about becoming brokers are able to pass it. There's a couple of other formalities, but they come from all kinds of backgrounds, some of them from a legal or or an international trade background. Some of them are even our own folks that used to work for CBP. But basically, they have a passion for international trade. Got it. And are some of them self-employed? You mentioned a lot of the big companies well-known, but can you be a self-employed broker and just freelance for small fry importers? 
Absolutely. A lot of this industry is what I call mom and pop family type of businesses where a daughter or a son will take over for their mother or their dad who owned the business. Many of them work in very niche parts of the industry where they'll specialize in a certain type of commodity. They can be a mom and pop, one family operation, or they can be a massive company like FedEx or UPS. But the one thing I wanted to mention, Tom, that I think would resonate with your listeners is pretty much everything that we work with, we deal with every day, very likely was expedited or cleared into this country by a custom house broker. The car you're driving in right now, if it was made overseas, which many of them are, the products that you use, the clothes you wear. I mean, let's face it, we don't manufacture nearly as much stuff as we did 50 or 100 years ago. So much of the stuff we use every day made overseas. And so everything you deal with every day likely was expedited or cleared by a custom house broker into one of our seaports, airports, trucks from Canada, Mexico, very dynamic environment. We're speaking with John Leonard. He's Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection. And like tax law or accounting law, is this an area of law that changes a lot? It is. International trade is an incredibly complex, dynamic environment where rules are changing, laws are changing, regulations. uh, It almost seems like a, a weekly basis. And so to keep these brokers, these folks that we regulate and we license up to speed, We decided in conjunction with the brokerage community and the private sector to enact this regulation whereby they must get continuing education requirements, much like many other professional licensing, you know, your medical profession, your real estate, your accounting, they all have to get some notion of continuing education credits. And so we finally, in my opinion, overdue, brought this into the world of customs brokers. Interesting. Has there been any kind of continuing education before that? Are you updating something or just inaugurating something brand new? No, actually, education for brokers has existed for many, many years. Classes that they themselves put on on the private side and training that CBP and other partner government agencies that have equities at the border have put on. But this is now the first time that we've actually made it a requirement in regulation, whereby continuing to actually hold your license you must get a certain number of hours in a certain amount of time. So, yeah, this is the formalization of it, Tom. Yeah, very similar to CPAs, I guess, in a lot of professions, medicine, and you name it. And how did you develop the course requirements, what it is that CBP needs to know that people themselves know to be good brokers? Great question. So, again, a lot of what we do in this space and in this part of CBP's mission set, we do very much in conjunction with our private sector stakeholders. So, in actually constructing the rule, we, we do a notice of proposed rulemaking. So we put that out and, and there were many comments about it, how we want to do it, how many hours are required, what type of training it would be, what the accreditation regime would be, like this course is good or this one would not qualify. So it was a very collaborative process. And I think we were really pleased with this final rule. And I think that our broker stakeholders are actually all very happy with it as well. And the coursework itself was developed by CBP, or are there organizations that already teach brokers what they need to know? They developed it. Actually, there's both on the private sector side and in international trade. There's a lot of organizations that give training. And let's face it, especially, you know, since the pandemic and even before, much of the training can be done online. So any reluctance when we were talking about this requirement, say, just say 10 or 15 years ago and folks like, oh, do I have to travel to get training and put in a lot of expense? We feel most, if not all of this training can be accomplished free of charge and a lot of it online. 
yet we still love the in-person stuff. We love to see them do in-person conferences and, and face-to-face training. We feel that that is really effective as well. But CBP will not be delivering the training. You just make sure that it conforms to what it is the government feels people need to know and private organizations. Is there an association of brokers or do they have some kind of a professional trade group? There are, but let me just reiterate, CBP actually will be providing some of that training, not necessarily all of it, but we do quite a lot of of training both on online, we do webinars, we do in-person trainings, but yeah, so we, we do offer that at the ports of entry, even here at headquarters. So yeah, we'll contribute. They have a lot of private side training as well. So it's a combination, I think. The one thing I will state is the CBP training, the government training generally will always be free. There are associations, Tom, for brokers. There's a national association, what we call the NCBFAA, the National Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders Association. And then almost every port area has their own local association, whether it be New York, New Jersey, L.A., Long Beach, or Northern California, or even Boston and other ports. They have their own groups that locally meet. Right. I imagine the commodities that come into different areas might be particular to that area. For example, maybe all the cars come in from the West Coast, from Japan or something, whereas, I don't know, sugar, rice and rum comes in on the East Coast. Absolutely. Like you'd never know it, but Philadelphia is a massive port for fresh produce coming up from Central and South America. It's just over time, it's become logistically and connections to to Route 95. Philly is a huge port for that. So there's brokers in Philly that specialize in all the intricacies of fresh produce. When I was our port director out in San Francisco, I had a relationship with a, a broker in Reno, Nevada. His only niche was firearms. The guy knew everything about importing firearms, working with ATF, what forms you needed. He had a bunch of clients and that was his niche. Fascinating stuff. And when does this training requirement become standard or when is it officialized, let's say? It will begin in calendar year 24. So in a few months time, part of our regulation of brokers is done what we call on a triennial basis, a three-year basis. So what we require them to get 36 hours every three years. So the next triennial period begins in 24 and hopefully we'll get it stood up in January. If we don't, we'll prorate it and they'll have to get less. But generally, it's going to be 36 hours every three years. And frankly, many of them get way, way more than that anyway. It's not going to be a heavy lift. John Leonard is Deputy Executive Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Trade at Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors ask a Defense Procurement Commission, where's the beef? But first, why Capitol Police reform is taking so long. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For several years, the Government Accountability Office has issued recommendations for reforming the Capitol Police. My next guest has compiled all of these studies and recommendations and came up with a few reform ideas of his own. Taylor Swift is a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress, and he joins me now. Mr. Swift, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, Demand Progress focuses on transparency and accountability primarily in the legislative branch of the government, fair to say. So this is why you decided to focus on the Capitol Police, which is one of those agencies of Congress. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, given that, you know, over the past two and a half years, there has been quite a large call to have the Capitol Police reform both its internal and public facing operations, given the massive failures from the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We thought that it was of paramount importance to kind of examine where the Capitol Police has been putting its resources and how it's been meeting its congressional directives since the January 6, 2021 attack. And rather than relate what happened on January 6th, which has been pretty well covered ground, what are the fundamental flaws in management of the Capitol Police that gave rise to that situation? And it's not the only situation they've had some trouble with. Yeah, that's a great question. So to kind of put it in perspective, the Capitol Police continues to grow both from a scope perspective, but then also within its budget. Over the past five years, their budget has grown 70 percent. Um, it's upwards to around $800 million, or 13% of the entire legislative branch appropriations subcommittee. So that is a pretty sizable chunk, right? That goes to protect the Capitol, protect members, uh, the public that comes into the Capitol all of the time. It's a really, 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 really important task. But as we saw on January 6th, there was leadership and intelligence gathering failures that left them woefully unprepared. And you know, we were so, so, so close to catastrophe. It could have been even worse than it already was. And so since those events, there have been numerous congressional directives, both from committees of jurisdiction and then other legislative branch agencies like the Government Accountability Office to kind of reform the operations of not only the Capitol Police internally, but then the United States Capitol Police Board, which is the oversight structure that kind of manages the Capitol Police from afar. Unfortunately, the structure of the board itself is it's kind of rampant with conflict of interest because, you know, they have the ability to hire and fire the inspector general. But the Capitol Police Board also has the Capitol Police chief serve as an ex officio member. So there is kind of this blurred, you know, inherent conflict there. And we're kind of seeing that as some of the data in our report suggests. And I'd love to get into it. Yes. And there's been a series of chiefs and they seem to have been unable to effectuate, I guess, meaningful change. Fair to say? Well, there has been some meaningful change. You know, we've actually seen a uptick in the resources available for rank and file officers. They've created a wellness center. They've um, reformed overtime pay provisions. They're starting to put more uh, resources into combating diversity issues and combating bias issues and training, um, things like that. But unfortunately, there are still a lot of outstanding issues within the department that quite frankly, the public doesn't really know about. And so some of those come from those directives from Congress directly. And then some of them do come from the Government Accountability Office. They deal with like emergency preparedness processes around how decisions are made, both in a emergency management perspective, but then also regular day to day. And then there's also continuing ongoing issues. And this was even an issue before the January 6th attack information sharing. The Capitol Police has been known for over a decade for being notoriously opaque, and they have kept reporters and the public and even at times congressional appropriators who fund the agency in the dark about their operations. And so that kind of leads us to where we are today. There have been some improvements, but they're still woefully behind where they should be. We're speaking with Taylor Swift. He's a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress. And so this idea of even releasing IG reports, for example, they don't release those to the public. And that's pretty much at variance with almost every other IG in the government. 
You nailed it. So two weeks ago, there was actually a Capitol Police Inspector General hearing before the House Committee on Appropriations. And the new IG, Mr. Russo, who was appointed in January, briefly mentioned that since the IG's inception in the middle 2000s, there have been 650 Inspector General reports dealing with the Capitol Police. Unfortunately, to date, there have only been four released to the public, which is rather astonishing. And to make matters worse, those four have all been released within the last four months. So up until April of this year, there were no public IG reports released to the public. All right. So transparency, leadership, intelligence gathering, preparedness and decision making in situations. What do they need to do? I mean, what reforms are undone that you feel are most urgent that they take on? Absolutely. So one of our biggest recommendations actually echoes what congressional appropriators have been asking of the department for quite some time, for three years now. And that's actually to establish a Freedom of Information Act-like process. A lot of people don't know that most departments, most um, metropolitan police departments around the country have FOIA. It allows the public and journalists and others to ask for that information. Well, since the United States Capitol Police is technically under the legislative branch, they aren't subject to FOIA. And so several years ago, the congressional appropriators mandated that the Capitol Police develop this process. And last week during the Capitol Police board hearing, which, by the way, was the first Capitol Police board hearing since the end of World War II, it was the first one in almost 80 years, the Capitol Police chief mentioned in his written testimony that they are still working on this process. Unfortunately, congressional appropriators have been asking this for going on three years now. So they're kind of dragging their feet. So that's step one. We've already talked about the lack of transparency around inspector general reports. The board and the department has been working with the IG's office to create a more transparent process to publicly release these reports. But unfortunately, we don't know what that process looks like. There isn't a written guideline that is published on its website. So we really don't know how that works. And then um, the board meeting minutes. So this this Capitol Police Board, they, they meet regularly. They, they don't really meet with external or public stakeholders. They do meet with congressional stakeholders, which is great. But those meeting minutes are not published. We do not have access to what goes on in these meetings, even if it's not highly classified or sensitive information. There isn't really a record of what is going on. So we don't really know what's being done. And then to that point, many metropolitan police departments all over the country have civilian oversight boards. It would be great if the Capitol Police and congressional appropriators and other committees of jurisdiction would look to develop some sort of public you know, stakeholder or oversight board so that there can just be more sunlight, so that there can just be more sure. communication to both the public, but then also the folks that live around the Capitol so that people know what's kind of going on. And just what about some of the operational issues? Those are all transparency, accountability, financial management, and these kinds of things, which are foundational. But are they good at training policemen to do police duty? Are they getting better at intelligence gathering and straightening out a command and control system so that when a January 6th type event happens, they know what to do and everyone's trained to know what to do? So that is a fantastic question. It's kind of up in the air right now. So several of the GAO recommendations that have been made over the past several years do deal with these processes and these training pieces. Unfortunately, up until this point, 
There have been 11 total recommendations. The United States Capitol Police has only complied with two of them. So those open recommendations kind of leave this gap in security and safety. And we just want to make sure that the Capitol Police, given their ballooning resources, are making sure that Capitol Police are trained the right way, that the Capitol is secure, and that it's being done correctly. And so that is, I guess, one of the reasons why we wanted to publish this report is that it's been two and a half years since this colossal failure at the leadership level and, and the intelligence level. God forbid something like this ever happens again, but we want to make sure that the Capitol Police are being transparent and honest about how they're making these reforms so that they're doing it the right way, especially since their budget has gone up basically 70 percent since January 6, 2021. Taylor Swift is a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors ask a Defense Procurement Commission, where's the beef? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Defense contractors are scratching their collective heads after a procurement reform commission released some early findings. The Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution, or PPBE, commission seemed to sidestep some important questions, according to my next guest. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and he joins me now. And I think, David, a lot of people are saying the commission seems to simply have kind of made some obvious recommendations, but really the PPBE itself seems to remain fully intact. Tom, it's nearly 200 pages in its interim report. And of course, the final report is due next March. The commission had a little delay getting started. It's a congressionally mandated commission. And so Congress is at least in part the audience for this commission's report. And in the interim report, they have a a number of recommendations, but many of the areas that they focus on, they don't actually make a recommendation. What they state is they are considering recommendations in this area. And the the ones that matter the most to contractors are the ones that we focus on. Right. And a lot of it had to do with my reading of it is that they just need to be able to have more reprogramming of budget authority and flexibility. This is a real key. One of the things that the commission notes is how long it takes to put the budget together, get it submitted and and then approved by Congress, and then executed. So your years, two years, three years, four years between the time you have the idea and the time you actually spend the money. Not surprisingly, things change during those two to four years. And so there's a need to ask Congress or there's a need for the department, at least, to change how it plans to spend the money. What Congress has done is they've imposed relatively low thresholds, pretty small amounts of dollars in the grand scheme of an $860 billion budget to allow the department to have that flexibility. And they don't always approve it. And so a lot of times that flexibility isn't in there. This is critical to companies who are living in the middle of this disconnect between what you thought three or four years ago you'd be doing and what you actually have to do now. On the other hand, if you have wholesale reprogramming since the planning and budgeting part was all instituted, then in that sense, PPBE doesn't have that much relevance anymore. 
Well, that could be true, although I think that the tracking system still allows you to get there. The E part, which is a relatively recent introduction, you know, it used to be the PPBS, the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System. The E was added only only a, a 15 years or so ago, and it's always been joked that it's the silent E. Nobody really pays that much attention to execution once it's done. Um, I don't know if the commission makes a comment on that. I don't recall that they do. But I think that, that in any budget, the, the execution part is really the part that matters the most. What do you get for the dollars that you spend? So I'd really like to see, and I think uh, our PSC members would like to see a greater focus on that. I note that you know other agencies that have much smaller budgets than DOD, the Department of Homeland Security, for example, has a higher reprogramming threshold than DOD does. I don't know whether that indicates that their committees have greater confidence in DHS's ability to execute its programs than the relevant committees do for DOD. I would submit that if that confidence is greater, I'd love to see the basis of it and, and see it applied to DOD as well. Yeah, well, that's a good observation, although it could be simply a matter of age. You know, PPBS or PPBE, whatever it is, dates back to the 60s, and DHS didn't get established until, you know, this century. So maybe just the numbers are all bigger, you know, for anything happening in this century versus mid-last century. And you know, Tom, that comment about how long the PPB system has been in place, right? I mean, it was instituted at the beginning of the Kennedy administration by Robert McNamara. And it does have one really powerful attribute that I think sets it apart from much of the rest of the federal government. And that is, it is a fiscally disciplined system that looks out beyond the current year, builds into a, a five-year program, and forces DOD to think more clearly about how it's going to spend the money today to support the needs years from now. That's a real strength of the system, and I think that needs to be retained. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, and getting back to practical matters in this report, in this latest interim report, there is also a punt, as you put it, of extending the time before funds expire. And if something was worthy of funding, but the funding expires because Congress can't get its act together, and therefore, you know, it's a new fiscal year or something, that's a big issue for you. It's a huge issue, and it's an issue not only for, for companies, but it's an issue for the department itself. You know, the Defense Department, in fact, all appropriations have a period of availability, right, amount of time that before the funds expire. It could be one year, it could be two years, be three or four or five or longer. Some agencies even have funds that have no expiration date. It's no-year money. But the biggest problem in DOD is the one-year money, the O&M money, the operation and maintenance money to go for current operations. Well, if Congress doesn't actually end up appropriating the funds, and then OMB takes another month after appropriation before they release the funds until March or April, you've got one-year money that's really three-month money or four-month money. It's ludicrous to have to cram that kind of expenditure into that period of time, even if you've been spending some of it up to that point. That really needs to be tackled by the commission and the Congress to give one-year money a full year to be obligated and expended. This is the kind of thing that would make planning and programming and budgeting and execution much more practical. And notwithstanding that a lot of the commission's recommendations are or their final recommendations will be directed toward Congress, the DOD, almost the same day that the interim report came out, said, yeah, we're going to do all of this. 
That struck you as a little odd. It's unusual to see the department endorse a commission's recommendations on the day it's released without you know, further study or review, et cetera, particularly since many of the recommendations are interim recommendations and could be changed in the final report. But it is noteworthy as an endorsement that the department put out a press release, uh, an odd turn of phrase. It said attributable to the deputy secretary of defense rather than actually quoting the deputy secretary of defense as directing DOD to implement those recommendations over which it already has existing authority. Not clear which those are and uh, what that implementation plan looks like. We'll be looking at that carefully over the coming days. And I want to switch gears completely here with you and ask about some merger guidelines of defense contractors that are coming out from the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. And we know this Federal Trade Commission never saw a merger it liked, even if Pa's Bakery buys Mom's Bakery down the block, they'd probably step in and try to stop that one, even though there's 20 other bakeries in town. There's still time to comment on this, and this could have a big impact on a dynamic activity, which is M&A in the defense space. It is a big activity. It has been for years in the defense space, uh, you know, well-documented. You know, the Last Supper from 1993, look to your left and look to your right. One of you three will not be in business five years from now because there's not enough business to sustain enough companies so you consolidate. There's a lot of other reasons for doing that. So this is the Federal Trade Commission and, and the Justice Department combined to put out the guidelines that they will follow as they examine mergers and acquisitions and decide whether to file an antitrust lawsuit. One of the interesting things, Tom, you and I have talked about this before, is that the administration puts out guidelines that address the broader commercial economy, but they have impact and implications for federal contracting, which is both a subset of and different than the broader commercial economy, different for all the rules that contracts put into place. There's no attention paid on the specific needs for mergers and acquisition review in the government contracting space. Why is this important? The basis of these guidelines is a redefinition of competition, which antitrust focuses on maintaining competition. The problem inside the government contracting world is the lack of competition is not because of the companies. It's because you only have one buyer, which is the federal government, right? And so to put the commercial competition requirements on a monopsonistic situation where only the DOD is buying or only the other agencies are buying is really not something that these guidelines address. That's something that PSC on behalf of our members will be addressing fully as we submit our comments in September. I guess maybe they are what I think might be in their minds is a bigger issue that has been already reaching the mainstream press, the idea that the defense industrial base is not resilient and really not up to capacity that's needed to supply in real wartime as we've seen, I think one of the newspapers had a story about 155-millimeter howitzer shells. Well, you don't see that in daily papers very often, something so arcane. But that seems to be the bellwether commodity that is showing the strain on the dib. You're absolutely right. And actually, this ties back a little bit to some of the things that the PPB-ish commission talked about. You know, the impact of, of the uncertainty in the terms of the congressional budgeting and appropriations process, the long CRs that you have come into place, the question of whether you're even going to have a government shutdown, make it very difficult for a company to kind of project and invest for the long term. And you begin to see the results of that when you get something like the war in Ukraine that puts long-term demands on short-term supply. None of that is addressed either by the commission itself, although it hints a lot at the CR problems, but they're mostly on the budgeting side of it, not the producing results side. 
Now you see it in these guidelines as well. And of course, we're coming up against the deadline of the end of this fiscal year. And you tell me, are we going to have a shutdown? Are we going to have a continuing resolution? How long will it last? So how could you plan for long-term investment under those kinds of circumstances? David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. No answer on that last question, but thanks for joining me. We'll talk about it in September, I believe. Thank you, Tom. I think we will. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody knows the security clearance process can be a drag, but a new study from the RAND Corporation suggests the government could improve recruiting and retention by focusing on the candidate experience. RAND's suggestions come as agencies continue to reform that personnel vetting process under the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the lead for the candidate experience study at RAND, Dave Stebbins. This is sort of a new look, right? This is kind of flipping the traditional you know, viewpoint on this, right, where it's sort of top down, you know, from the government angle. And what we really wanted to do from this report was sort of reveal it from the candidate's point of view, right? It hasn't been done before from that lens. Uh, and that's really how we set out uh, with this report, right? And, you, and so you see, as you go through, uh, we, we have a framework that really is, it's from the candidate viewpoint, but it, it's also, hey, government, you know, take a look at these things, these categories as well. Um, so we, we try to incorporate both of those uh, viewpoints. And really the main thing here that was that was found, there's a number of really interesting recommendations and observations that we'll get into, but really the big picture here is that there is no across the board approach for really creating a positive candidate experience through kind of these federal hiring and screening processes. Why why isn't there any sort of institutionalized approach here at this point? And what is RAND proposing to maybe help address that problem? So as we started looking at this and conducting um, sort of our traditional literature review, right, where we look at government policy, government documents, and then the academic literature, right? So the government does have um, a a pretty good handle on customer experience, right? The OMB, right? The Office of Management and Budgets, uh, I think it's A-11, their circular, and it's really directs agencies to provide better customer experience. Uh, and these are these are agencies that are designated as high impact service providers, HISPs. And so there is a lot of good, you know, thinking out there about how to provide better government services to the public, right? And so this is, you know, do you need help with your tax forms, right? It, it's IRS. Do you need help with federal loans through, through your, you know, your student loans? You know, here's how you can sort of work those things through through Department of Ed. But as we looked through, uh, we noticed that a lot of the existing, you know, sort of government gu- guidance and policy is really focused outwardly, right? So again, pu- very public facing, not a whole lot looking uh, internally, right, at, at those folks who are trying to enter government service, uh, and especially as our report focuses on that, that vetting process, right? Whether that's the, um, you know, a public trust position, a sensitive position, or, or again, the, the security clearance uh, population. So as we started our research, we quickly came to realize, you know, we actually thought we had something great, right, with the HISP things. But again, as we dug down into it, we very quickly realized, no, actually, this is or HISP uh, designated departments and agencies. And this work was performed for the Performance Accountability Program Management Office, right? And so they have responsibilities for a lot of these these reform uh, efforts, the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. There is some existing guidance. So we could use that as sort of a baseline to work from, you know, again, as we went through, we can see lots of folks, you know, wanting to improve the candidate experience across the board, but there's really, there's no training on how to do that, right? It's not really formalized in any meaningful way across the departments and agencies. And so really, this report, again, was to try to examine 
sort of what's out there, but at the same time, it was very much an exploratory research effort, you know, trying to understand, well, how is the private sector doing it? Can we sort of, you know, uh, borrow any of those practices and apply it to the government side? And so I think, again, that's where a lot of those observations and suggestions um, fall out at the end. But I'm happy to walk through those uh, as well, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the concrete things that the government could do to improve this process. So, I mean, I think all of our listeners are probably aware the security clearance process at for lack of a better term, it stinks. Uh, you know, everyone knows it takes a long time. It's almost accepted at this point, and they've tried to push down on the time it takes. But beyond that, you know, as you mentioned, there there isn't a lot of metrics and data on what exactly that experience is between when you first get interested in a job and, and maybe when you get hired or not. So let's drill down into some of the things that maybe the government could do to really improve this candidate experience. Sure. Yeah. And so I, you know, I will say, you know, I think this has been examined a lot in the past, right? And, and mainly it's been looking at the timeline, right? I'm sure you've seen all the GAO reports and, you know, CRS reports, and it's all, it's really all focused on timelines, right? Time to time to process and so forth. And again, I think that's maybe one of several things that, that the government could be looking at. You know, I, I think what we did is we sort of backed up from this and we really wanted to look at this in three phases, right? Most folks, and again, those GAO reports, they're focusing specifically on that vetting process, right? And But, oh, by the way, this person had to have applied at some point, right? They had to be looking for a job. And also, oh, by the way, it's not over uh, after that vetting process. As you know, you know, part of the Trusted Workforce uh, 2.0 you know, lines of effort is to enroll folks into uh, continuous vetting, right, CV. Um, and so that candidate experience can't just stop right at the end of your, your vetting process, right? Um, and so what we tried to do is we took a little bit of a business model approach to it, right? And I think you, you see that throughout the report, but we really wanted to look at that pre-initial vetting stage, right, where folks are applying, they're looking for jobs, uh, right? And, you know, trying to figure out, well, geez, do I even want to do this, right? And I think, again, that's something that it hasn't been really examined in the past. So we wanted to start with that. And then, of course, we have the vetting stage, and I can get back into that in a moment. And then, of course, that post-initial vetting stage where folks are now onboarded, uh, hopefully, right? Uh, and then they are still undergoing this, this new continuous vetting model. There are a couple of other initiatives going on, right? So we've got the TW uh, 2.0, and one of those lines of effort is enhancing individual engagement. And so that's part of the impetus of this report. There's also a couple of other ongoing efforts to make the process a little bit easier, right? And so we have, there, there's a new proposed PVQ, the personal vetting questionnaire, and this is actually up for comment, or it was up for comment recently, but but this is, you know, looking to simplify the language a little bit, not have a, a, a thousand questions right on your form. And, you know, the last thing we want to do is have a long form and confuse people. And then, you know, before they can even enter the vetting stage, right, that they've sort of self-selected out and, uh, you know, oh, I can get a job somewhere else. Uh, that, that's a, a whole lot easier. It sounds like there are some efforts ongoing. You know, uh, you know let's talk about the, the framework that you're proposing here for security vetting. And what might that look like and how might that help? the government address kind of this lack of an institutionalized process here for candidate experience? I'll start with, you know, our framework is a way to think about it. Uh, I will say that it is not the way to think about it, right? Because as we know, there are lots of different departments and, and agencies throughout the, the U.S. government, right? And so we didn't want to have a one-size-fits-all approach. And, and certainly, you know, as we learned, again, through our literature review and interviews, especially with the private sector, right, every, everything is different, right? And so I, I know the government loves to standardize things, right, and streamline things, but really this is sort of a flexible framework that departments and agencies could take and then, again, sort of develop its, its own formalized guidance on, on how to do this. 
our framework really starts with step one, right? Where somebody is looking for a job. Uh, and again, in the, in the business world, right? This is sort of the awareness, attraction and consideration stage, right? And this is all about, you know, branding and so forth. The, the questions we develop, they're very open-ended um, and they're a bit reflexive. It's almost at a three-year-old level, right? Well, how do people even know we exist, right? How can we be more proactive in doing that, right? So, you know, folks who come fresh to DC, it's sort of the alphabet soup. Not a whole lot of information on there. You know, some departments or agencies are better than others on sort of highlighting what they do and what the mission is and what they're looking for, right? But obviously, you know, no process is perfect, right? There's always room for improvement. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't be a process. It would just happen. You know, I would also say what's motivating candidates right now. So obviously some generational changes we're seeing between sort of the traditional workforce population and then the emerging generations, right? The traditional workforces, perhaps I'm generalizing here a bit, and so I don't want to over-categorize, but, you know, traditional is, you know, where can I go work for 20 to 30, 40 years, right? Retire, get my special watch, and I'm good, right? But of course, as you know, the emerging, you know, Gen Z and, and uh, millennial and be interested in, well, how can I identify this work? You know, what's their CSR, right? Their corporate social responsibility, right? You know, it's, it's very different things than sort of that traditional workforce. So again, you know, I think there's a series of, you know, 14 or 15 questions, even in just that first step to help departments and agencies think about, well, okay, you know, how can we sort of relook at these things? Dave Stebbins, political scientist at Rand Corporation, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. There's more to the interview here in its entirety on Inside the IC here on Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.